Welcome to episode 129 of the Blooms of Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. How are you doing today, Dermot? Very good. Are you sure? Positive. <laughs> okay. Affirmative? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've been replaced by an AI, so this will be an oh. interesting episode. Oh, okay. AI, Dermot. Why don't you go ahead and write us an episode of Blooms and Barnacles in the style of Blooms and Barnacles? Ulysses is a book set in Dublin in the past, and it tells the story of a day in Dublin in the past, because people in the past walked around Dublin in the past and did things. It's a very good book, quite popular with college students. Now, in reality, I, I have asked ChatGPT to describe Blooms and Barnacles, and it said it's created by Kelly Bryan, one of the world's foremost Joyce scholars. Correct. That's probably one of its hallucinations, as they call it. <laughs> there was another, I don't remember what the prompt was because my friend put it in, but it said that the char- that Kelly Bryan is a literary character that was based on the life of William S. Burroughs <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was also the inspiration for Molly Bloom. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're all out of jobs, everybody. I think AI lost $190 billion this year. Okay. Hmm, so. All right. No worries if you're out there. Do you think about. that the, the Freemasons had anything to do with that? <laughs> the Illuminati, maybe. Not, what about the Freemasons? It's Klaus Schwab and the WEF. They're all in it. Why Why are you evading my question? I don't, because I don't know what they're a secret society and they don't let me in. <laughs> I keep asking and they won't let me in. You could join the Freemasons. No. They you have won't to believe in a higher power, though. Oh, I do. Oh. Yeah, the well, prime, then prime mover. Why not join the Freemasons? I probably should. I don't know where you'd find a. Freemason Lodge in the spur there, of the world. There but... used to be a lodge in my hometown, Arklow, oh, okay. right across Ferrybank. That's Bank. right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll do a little diversion story because it's funny. So my dad used to work in an industrial skill job and the foreman was an asshole and uh, English guy. So nobody liked him because he was English. I want to play the whole English-Irish thing, but it didn't help. Anyway, um, it was he, this guy was the, uh, I've got the goddamn foreman's job at last. Screw the bloody working class types. Okay. Somebody saw this guy going into the Masonic Lodge. And this is at a time when it was still a Masonic Lodge in the 80s. I think it's like a preschool it's now. It's preschool now. It? Love your building. And um, so I said, oh, really? He's a Mason. And his dad said, yeah. And so I said, well, you know all the, the secret signs? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, because I'd been reading books about, you know, actual books by real journalists about mm-hmm. the Freemasons. And I said, you meant to stand with your feet, like with your ankles together, mm-hmm. uh, uh, feet apart at a 90 degree angle with your fingers pointing straight to the ground. And you would say, are you on the square or are you on the level? Meaning, are you in the, you know, and I showed him the funny handshake. So cue the next couple of days and dad forwarded this information to his his comrades. And when the foreman walked onto the shop floor, they were all standing. Like, and then they said, hey, are you on the square? Are you on the level? And he got really angry and he stomped out. That was my family connection to fighting Freemasonry. I had a, a friend in high school who had bought a Masonic ring in like a like a Goodwill secondhand store. Mm-hmm. And he would just wear it around because we're a bunch of artsy hipsters and he thought it was cool. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> legend has it that someone came up to Rick at some point and like started doing the handshake with him and he didn't know what to do. Oh, and they yes. just like stepped away from him. Yeah. Um, well, why are we talking about Freemasonry? Uh, because uh, we're going to be talking about whether or not Leopold mm-hmm. Leopold is a Freemason. Yes, on the blog. So if this is your first time tuning in, this is not a Freemasonry podcast. But it is a, a podcast about everything related to Ulysses. It's also a blog. In a forthcoming blog post, if you're listening to this in real time, it should be up by the time you're listening to this. But uh, if it's not, check our social media. We're exploring the question uh, of whether or not Leopold Bloom is a Freemason. Dermot's done some artwork. Mm-hmm. Would you like to describe the artwork you've done? Inspired by the greatest piece of artwork in the history of the world, the American $1 bill, which uh, <laughs> which was designed specifically to make uh, uh-huh. people paranoid. People who live on weird little country towns would be driven insane by the eye on the top of the pyramid, mm-hmm. which is a really freaky thing to put. It's basically saying, look, this money thing, it's a pyramid scheme. So get in early and okay. you'll be fine. And there's a big eye watching over you. But so it, if you do anything it, wrong. Isn't it Masonic imagery, though? I think so, yeah. 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 Were the, the founding fathers all Masons? Yeah, they were all Masons. And the actual Illuminati were founded in 1776. They were a secret society founded by a guy called Adam Weishaupt in, mm-hmm. I think, Austria or something like that. And you, if you read online chatter about the Illuminati, you will read for year after year after year and not one person will ever mention his name because they are not interested in the historical Illuminati, mm-hmm. only the ones that exist in the goblins. Yeah, that's in their way head. more 
fun because then it can be anything. Yeah, but I think the masonry goes back further than that. Uh, allegedly, it's the Knights Templar and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and the Knights um, Hospitaller yeah, and all that. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost certain there are like secret cults and societies, affinity groups, and it's a great way to have a bit of... Uh, I would guess uh, as long as there's been societies, there's been secret societies within it. Like, Look, look at this way. Like, you live in the world before Airbnb and Holiday Inns and what have you. And you're going to be going to Vienna and you're moving from Paris. You find the nearest lodge and you'll be you'll have people looking yep. out for you. So I can see why people would want to do it without necessarily like mm-hmm. trying to implement a one world order. But one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you have a one world order. So mm-hmm. you know, who knows? You just who knows? have a pyramid with all a pyramid with a big top. eye on top, letting you know, watch what you say. Well, what do you think? Do you think Leopold Bloom could be a Freemason? So far in the text that I've read, because mm-hmm. I haven't read the entire book. I'm reading the book for the first time as mm-hmm. we go along. I haven't seen any signs. And I'm a guy who taught his dad how to torture a Freemason <laughs> when he was uh, when he was in his late tw- early 20s. Uh-huh. And I, I haven't seen Right. anything that would go that sounds masonic you haven't that's fair you haven't hit any of the parts that i will cite in the article that will be available soon on mm-hmm. bloomsandbarnacles.com for you to read and peruse we solicited some responses from you the listeners so i did want to read a few of those that i got the first one up is from tim I'm doubtful that Bloom actually was a Mason, but I've not reread the final chapters yet. The crucial evidence will be Freemasonry entering Bloom's own stream of consciousness. The speculations of jealous and mildly anti-Semitic Dubliners are just par for the course. It helps their own self-esteem to believe that anyone wealthier or more successful than themselves must have an unfair advantage. Yeah, I would say the most evidence, Tim, if you're looking for it, would be in Cersei. And I don't think that that should be, you know, so sometimes people will discount that chapter because it's described as hallucinatory. But I always tell people it's a hallucination you t- should take seriously. And I know at least one book I read said that there's just evidence that it's things he Bloom has buried into his subconscious and now they're surfacing as he's trapped in the world of the subconscious. And I, I think that that makes sense to me. Hmm. Um, okay. Uh, I've got one more here from Bart. I'm an American Jew. My father was born in New York in 1924. His father had come from a chattel in Ukraine outside of Kiev. I remember my father talking about his membership in the Masons. I have his ring, but no other evidence of membership. I think it's entirely possible that Leopold joined the Masons. He desperately wanted to be included in the circle of men who ignored him. His sense of Judaism was only on the, on the sidelines. His mother wasn't a Jew, so at that time he wasn't either. But his father was... And that was enough for the Irish citizenry to see him as a Jew and therefore on the outside. I can see Leopold joining the Masons as a way of trying to fit in, just as my father did. Mm-hmm. Yep, I really like Bart's point there. It's obviously a real world, world example. Mm-hmm. I do argue that if you were a Jewish person in turn of the century Dublin, there probably weren't a lot of opportunities for you potentially. You know, obviously there are like self-made people in that, but it could be very hard to get ahead if if you're a marginalized member of that society. Mm -hmm. So it would be illogical to not join a society that you thought could help you get a leg up. So, Mm. and then last one is from Grant. As a Freemason myself, this topic is of particular interest to me. Before we delve into the text, some things we can dismiss against Bloom being a Freemason are both the fact that he's a Jew or an atheist on the first count. Jewish people are fully welcome in Masonry and the Masonic Lodge would be a great way for a Jewish person to bolster ties to their community. And historically, there have been many Jewish Masons. One appeal of Masonry for a Jewish person would be that the Masonic Lodge would be one of the few places where they would be fully seen as a peer. The passage that provides the most convincing proof of Bloom occurs in the Circe episode, where Bloom is rescuing Stephen, and just before seeing the apparition of Rudy, Bloom communes with the night. Face reminds me of his poor mother in the shady wood. The deep white breast, Ferguson, I think I caught. A girl, some girl. Best thing could happen to him, he murmurs. Swear that I will always hail, ever conceal, never reveal any part or parts, art or arts. Oh, there we go. Bingo. Okay, so that's that pings something in your brain there. Yeah, that's the Masonic oath. Yeah. So you know you're you're swearing that you'll never tell anybody uh, that uh, the secrets yeah. uh, on penalty of being, I think, hanged and hung from a bridge. Mm-hmm. And then we get into the Vatican Bank and the Roberto Calvi murder and all that good stuff from the 1980s. All right. Um, Grant's email was. I, I really enjoy people's personal experiences, obviously, but Grant's email was really, really illuminating. And mm. there, I would say there is so much Masonic evidence in the Cersei episode that I won't include it all in the blog post because it would get tedious, mm. honestly. And um, this is just an excerpt from a much, much, much longer email, but I did want to throw in that evidence because it's not one I'm going to discuss in the blog post. But there's just there's just so many examples in Cersei once... She, 
And for me, I don't really know anything about Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. I just always grew up hearing they were anti-Catholic, and so I didn't like them when I was younger. It, look, but I, uh, it's. I think like we have a lot of American listeners, mm-hmm. so we need to like differentiate yeah. here between like with Catholicism. There's a very different experience in the United States mm-hmm. between uh, Catholics, American Catholics, with, between and um, Americans and Masonry, mm-hmm. and that in the UK and Ireland. Mm-hmm. And in the UK and Ireland, both of those from different sides. Uh, are are politically more powerful, I think, mm-hmm. proportionally. So, if you watch the original uh, the detective series Prime Suspect with mm-hmm. Helen Mirren, which was late eighties, early nineties, constant references to funny handshakes and corruption. Mm-hmm. So, if you're a bent cop in the UK and you go down to the lodge, not only do you have the layer of protection from the thin blue line types, mm-hmm. but you also have the Masonic Brotherhood as well. Who are mm-hmm. going to protect you and of course helen Mirren is not a brother so uh, any female detective mm-hmm. not only has to combat the implicit misogyny in the met mm-hmm. but also the metropolitan police yeah. but also the masonic patriarchal structure as well which really puts you on the outside i would say the one thing i would still have against the freemasons at this stage is this that they don't they don't let women in you know, which I do consider discrimination, but it, mm. you know, whatever. I would, I would say, yeah. What I'd always heard is that they're really anti-Catholic, so I didn't like them for that reason. But what I learned in researching this episode, and I don't care if they're anti-Catholic or not anymore. I'm talking about like how I felt when I was 19. Mm. But that's many years ago now. What I did learn is that there's really no Masonic conspiracy against Catholics, mm-hmm. but there was a a deliberate and concerted conspiracy against Freemasons by the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there were papal encyclicals written against the conspiracy of Masons and Jews, like by Leo Thirteenth. Mm-hmm. You have to read the, the full blog post if you want more. Yeah, so that, that's kind of where that belief comes if from. If memory serves, yeah. Leo XIII was one of the more liberalizing popes. Mm-hmm. I, I think, if I got my legal numbers right, yeah. um, he, had, he was one of the advocates of distributism, which was sort of mm-hmm. like a... Uh, movement against socialism but also mm-hmm. against capitalism i'm fairly sure one thing he did not support though was the separation of church and state and right. a lot of what they pushed was that if the the masons get too much power yeah. they're gonna there's gonna be a separation of church and state mm-hmm. so yeah and anybody curious about pro- uh, more recent manifestations mm-hmm. of um uh masonry the italian t- uh, propaganda mm-hmm. due uh movement is wild and it brought it, it absolutely destabilized Italy. Like this is a okay. so the church wasn't entirely wrong about being afraid of masonry as a political mm-hmm. force. Yeah. So I'm just checking my memory bank to make sure this gentleman isn't still alive uh, because I not that I don't want to get sued. I don't want to get killed. So uh, named Licio Gelli or Jelly, uh, L-I-C-I-O-G-E-L-L-Y. Uh, LLI, uh, died in 2015, an Italian Freemason criminal and terrorist, a fascist volunteer in his youth. He is chiefly known for his role in the Banco Ambrosiano scandal. He was revealed in 81 as being the venerable master of the clandestine Masonic Lodge propaganda due. I only know about this because Robert Anton Wilson uh, mm-hmm. uh, was fascinated by this man. Mm-hmm. And apparently during the Second World War, he had the fascists thinking he was a spy. For, he was spying for them against the communists and vice versa or the American. He, he was working two or three sides at the same time. Very mm-hmm. clever man. And according to Wilson, he didn't have... He wasn't in a lodge. He just told people he was. Mm-hmm. And he had judges join and politicians join. And by the time he was done, he really was. So it became a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in our time. Like you can mm-hmm. track this and see the people alive today who got caught up in P2. Mm-hmm. And the corruption expanded throughout the entire Italian political system. And I think there were assassinations. People were blown up. Uh, it mm-hmm. was the early 80s in Italy were nuts. Banco Ambrosiano, Vatican Bank, Roberto Calvi ends up being hanged by his neck from a bridge. Jeez. They said it was a suicide. Impossible. You couldn't do it if you tried. So in London, so somebody went in and did this. The same day his secretary in uh, Rome uh, committed suicide by jumping out the window. He got defenestrated. So mm-hmm. clearly somebody just hurled her out. There was an, a, a Vatican archbishop called uh, the, the Gorilla. That was mm-hmm. his surname. It was like mobster names. Um, Marcinkus, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and you can read about this it, by people alive today All who right. lived through it. Are they going to be upset if I write about Masonic imagery and Ulysses? No, All because right. I think this is like traditional masonry, like the Scottish rites will be a yeah. completely different thing. Yeah. But it's interesting to see how somebody could take that, mm-hmm. sort of weaponize it and use it in a way that 
League of the Thirteenth would have said, "I told you so." You know, <laughs> <laughs> I tried to warn you. You didn't okay. listen. All right, let's move on. Well, I think Dermot <laughs> will spin on this topic all day if you let him. <laughs> Before we get even further down the rabbit hole, uh, I'd like to move on to our actual episode. Um, so first of all, I want to say before we get into the material today, thank you so much to all of our PayPal donors and of course our patrons over on Patreon, patreon.com slash barnaclecast, where you can get a video episode of this episode. You can get early access to all of our episodes and a monthly bonus episode for your support. So we've just released a new bonus episode in January, part one of a series we're going to do this year on Dubliners. We covered the sisters and an encounter. And I got a, a comment from patron Owen about the sisters. I recently reread the sisters in anticipation of your bonus episode. What struck me the most is I'd forgotten how funny it was when Eliza says, no one would think he'd make such a beautiful corpse about the poor old dead priest. I guess that would have been massively irreverent back in the day. But I think Eliza is well-meaning and just prone to saying stuff that is slightly funny. She also says about how easy a housemate the priest had been. You wouldn't hear him in the house any more than now. As in, now that he's laid out in his coffin for the wake, I laughed out loud. All right, what do you think? All right. I enjoyed that comment. If you want to know what Dermot and I think about the sisters and about an encounter, we have to go to Patreon and uh, sign up and have a listen. And we're getting ready here to start recording our next episode. I was feeling very ambitious when I looked at the next three stories, which are Arabi, Evelyn, and After the Race, because they're all very short. But I think we'll probably end up just doing the first two, because even though they're short, I have a lot to say about them. So we'll probably save After the Race for March. Feel free to send in any comments or questions you have about these stories. You could do that on Patreon. You can uh, send me an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com or leave me a DM on Twitter or Instagram. I check those pretty regularly. Uh, follow our newsletter if you'd like monthly updates on all our content. Uh, leave a review on uh, your podcast app of choice. Follow us on social media, Twitter. Uh, it'll always be Twitter to me, Instagram. Mm-hmm. Facebook my is my the one I check the least and uh, Blue Sky is now open to everybody so follow me on there. Let's move on to the text. We are in Eolus, the seventh episode of Ulysses, and the material we'll cover today is from pages one forty three to one forty seven in my edition, which is the nineteen ninety vintage international edition. And we're gonna give a rebuttal to the speech we heard last time. Do you remember what the speech we heard last time was? It was, what's his face? John F. Taylor. Taylor. The great orator. Yes. I'm, I keep having flashbacks to that Blackadder episode with the actors. Oh. <laughs> you should have knocked. Oh, <laughs> knocks, you impertinent butler, were loud enough to wake the hounds of hell. Lead on, my God. I shall. <laughs> I was saying it very theatrically. He was arguing um, about, in favor of reviving the Irish language as a parallel between the um, biblical Israelites wanting to preserve their culture mm, in the face yeah. of the hegemonic Egyptians. Right, lots of pharaonic and mosaic imagery yeah. and stuff. What, what did you think about that speech? I kind of said at the end that I like it. I do, mm. I genuinely like that. It's one of my favorite parts of Ulysses. Uh, I think it was one of favorite Joyce's favorites as well, as it's the only part he ever made a voice recording of. He said it was the most declamatory section, but I think... You could have read any section of Ulysses. I think he must have just liked it and gave mm-hmm. that as a reason. Yeah. What did you think about it, you know, as an Irish person yeah, reading it? And fine. I've had a couple of weeks to digest it. Yeah, it's yeah, fine. It's okay. Uh, Mr. Kenrick, from your Hamlet, please. Oh, <clears throat> to be or not to be. <laughs> <laughs> from your Julius Caesar. <clears throat> oh, Yeah. I mean, you know, that style of oratory wouldn't work today, you know. But did it work for you? Uh, yeah. And from your leading character in a play connected with Scotland. That's Macbeth, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I could see how it working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had like, like I, said, I think I mentioned like Project Pierce's The Rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of same kind of mm-hmm. style, which I, I do find kind of stirring. You know, yeah. Hear that. You know, we will. Did you think you could defeat the risen people, the liars, tyrants, hypocrites? Mm-hmm. 
you know, we will have it out with you. And <laughs> yeah. you read that and you know what happened afterwards. It's like we did yeah. have it out with them, more or less beat, sort of beat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which mm-hmm. anybody reading that poem with their eyes rabble rousing bloody worked. Yeah. Well, uh, as we've talked about in previous episodes, Aeolus is structured as an episode like a classical rhetorical treatise. And so that means that rebuttals will be offered and appraisals of the examples of rhetoric examined. That's what we're going to do now because Stephen rebuts Professor McHugh's recitation of the tailor, but he does it silently. Hmm. Uh, but we can say whatever we want. Don't know why I said it like that. This is my favorite. Um, also, I will say, you know, there are all these headline sections in Aeolus, and uh, this is probably my favorite one. Ominous for him. It's ominous for him. Oh, I, I was reading this like it was a Greek word. <laughs> <laughs> ominous, like a omphalos or something. Ominous. fucking wrecked me. For him. With all the Catholic stuff, the Latin, yeah. <laughs> J.J. Malloy said not without regret, and yet he died without having entered the land of promise. A sudden, at the moment though, from lingering illness, often previously, expectorated demise, Lenin added, and with a great future behind him. The troop of bare feet was heard rushing along the hallway and pattering up the staircase. That is oratory, the professor said uncontradicted. Gone with the wind, hosts at Mullamast and Tara of the Kings, miles of ears of porches. The tribune's words howled and scattered to the four winds. A people sheltered within his voice, dead noise. The caustic records of all that ever, anywhere, wherever was. Love and laud him. Me no more. I have money. Gentlemen, Stephen said. At the next motion on the agenda paper, may I suggest that the House now do adjourn? You take my breath away. It's not perchance a French compliment, Mr. Amadenburg asked. Tis the hour, methinks, when the wine jug, metaphorically speaking, is most grateful in ye ancient hostelry. That it be, and hereby is resolutely resolved. All that are in favour say I. Lenhan announced. The contrary, no. I declare it carried. To which particular boozing shed? My casting vote is Mooney's. He led the way, admonishing. We will sternly refuse to partake of strong waters, will we not? Yes, we will not. By no manner of means. Mr. Madden Burke, following close, said with an ally's lunge of his umbrella, Lay on, Macduff! Chip of the old block, the editor cried, clapping Stephen on the shoulder. Let us go. Where are those blasted keys? He fumbled in his pocket, pulling out the crushed type sheets. Foot and mouth, I know. That'll be all right. That'll go in. Where are they? That's all right. He thrust the sheets back and went into the inner office. Okay, so what's going on here? Bit of chatter at the top, which is kind of hard to parse. I'm not exactly like when people are J.J. Malloy stuff. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. whatever. It's a bit, bit about Moses' land of promise. Now, a sudden at the moment, though, from lingering illness, often previously expect, I have no idea what Lenin's going on about. Uh, oratory. Uh, gone with the wind again i i'm kind of having trouble passing that then we get to like a big conversation about where are we going to get drinks yes to and which boozing shed a boozing shall we shed. Depart? i'm not sure what a french compliment is uh it's clearly like a turn of phrase he's referring mm-hmm. to something like americans have a thing about the irish goodbye which isn't an irish goodbye no, the, I, the, the americans say you know my people say an irish goodbye is when you leave without saying goodbye but in reality irish people say goodbye like 15 yeah. times bye 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 because nobody yeah. wants to be cut off if you're saying goodbye <laughs> on the phone and you get cut off you feel awful mm-hmm. and and I, I saw one of my friends online so i even done that with a telemarketer mm-hmm. somebody go okay bye now bye Oh, no, yeah, yeah. I talk, you on, I talk on the phone as part of my job, and that's, yeah. uh, I, I'm like putting the phone down. I can't go, bye, 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 and they'll cut themselves <laughs> off as they hang up. So, yeah. Yeah. And now, when he says, uh, we will sternly refuse to partake of strong waters, he's meaning like whiskey, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yes, we will not, by no manner of means. I don't know if he's being serious. I think that's like, we will not. It's a this double is negative. Lenahan saying this. He loves his. He's going to have a, he's going to have a whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. someone else will pay for it. So. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do when I worked for Disney in North Hollywood in LA, we found like a lovely Japanese place every Wednesday we went there. And I used to get like a little glass of Chablis because it was light and it went with the Chinese, the Japanese food. And then one day the little lady said, you know, we have it in carafes. And I went, yes, please. So every every Wednesday I would have like half a bottle of wine. And those are the best afternoons ever because to work in that company, you'd have to be a little bit blotto. So these guys are the same. There I go and yeah. they're coming back probably at least that drunk. Which is kind of floaty, yeah. Because it's only an hour for lunch, so you can't. If you but if if it's an hour for lunch and you're having a Guinness or two, you can't get that drunk. But with whiskey, mm-hmm. you can come back well liquored up. Then yep, 
Lenahan suggests Moonies. If you know the O'Connell Street part of Dublin, do you know where the Freeman's Journal offices would have been? Yeah, before the GPO as you go north. Yeah, yeah. They would have been where Eason's is now. Mm-hmm. Um, that area, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my memory's telling me the Irish Independent used to be in there. Yes, yeah. There is a building that's still there. It's all boarded up now, but it says it still has the Irish Independent oh, on it. Yeah. Okay. It's just down the same street. It's where Govinda's our favorite harry krishna run vegetarian restaurant is yeah it's yeah we we next time we're in the city center in dublin i'll show you okay um and so you would come out onto that street which is abbey street Mm -hmm. and there's one of those plaques that they put down on the street Mm -hmm. um where bloom steps out of the office at the beginning of lestragonians is Mm -hmm. there at the steps of easton and i had heard that that one was wrong because the freeman's journal was is referred to in this episode as the the old woman of Princess Street, mm-hmm. which Princess Street is one. It's basically an alley between, you know, See, my, running alongside the post office. But it must have been a huge no, office no, if there my, was printing. My memory is telling me yeah. I saw the Irish Independent like letterhead over that alley. Now, oh. I, maybe I'm completely mm-hmm. misremembering because this is 30 plus well, years ago. Well, the Freeman's Journal but, closed in the 20s. That's, so that's where the printing you know. press would have spat out. Yeah the stuff for trucks to take them off to be yeah. delivered. But I would I say would the way this is described, they're clearly stepping out onto Abbey Street, crossing yes. over the traffic island there because they mentioned going past John Gray's statue. Yeah. Well, then and the, then into Mooney's, which is just on the other side of O'Connell Street. So it's still there. You can would, go to Mooney's today I would today imagine the want. building stretched from the alley mm-hmm. to Abbey Street. So they would have that's, had... That's the point that I'm making. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. it would have been a huge building yeah. if there's a printing press and offices yeah. and there's multiple daily papers being run out of there. So You can't be having the whole thing yeah, yeah. coming out of one so office. So there would... Yeah. I My assumption... Because I used to think... Someone told me that plaque is wrong. That's by the Eason Steps on Abbey Street. But I think in Easton says on the building established 1911. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what came and went, but I know based on my reading that by that time, the Freeman's Journal was in decline. Mm. So, you know, they must have had an entrance on the Abbey Street side and also the Princess Street side. So, right. But it's clear and we'll start to read it in this section that they're stepping out onto Abbey Street, crossing O'Connell Street in front of Sir John Gray and then going to Mooney's which is just down there. They also mentioned the Oval, which is another, it was a journalist bar back in the day, which is still there. I've had lunch in the Oval before. Well, let's talk about our text here. For all its fire and poetry, McHugh's recitation, you know, he's given this grand oratory. He looks like the Jim Larkin statue. And then it's not met with rapturous applause, but with silence and kind of, yeah, that's a good speech. You mentioned the uh, J.J. O'Malloy comment, as he said, and yet he died without having entered the, the land of promise. Now, there could be a reference to Moses, which would make sense given the Mosaic content. Moses, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, died atop Mount Pisgah, P-I-S-G-A-H, mm-hmm. uh, without e- ever entering the promised land. There's a Mount Pisgah in Oregon, too. Mm. I'm sure they named it after the yeah. biblical one. Yeah. Uh, but that's an important bit of imagery because... Charles Stuart Parnell died without um, home rule ever passing. Joyce is writing this in the late 1910s, mm-hmm. post-1916, so he would have kind of known which way the wind blew. Uh, it could also be true of John F. Taylor, who died, I believe it was 1902 when he died. If his dream was for, again, um, you know, an independent Ireland or an Ireland where the language is revived, he also would have died without seeing his own, you know, nationalist dreams come true. Mm-hmm. So the use of pronoun here is purposely ambiguous, which is something Joyce does a lot. We've talked about it before. We also get, following on from that, is Stephen's silent rebuttal. So Stephen is initially swayed by Taylor's eloquence. He is even tempted in the previous passage to follow in Taylor's footsteps, where he says, noble words coming, look out, could try your hand at it yourself. Maybe I could be a great orator. Mm -hmm. Don't think Stephen has the charisma score to do that. I, I think he's an odd little stinky man at this point, but uh, it's, it's uh, you know, maybe he could be a speechwriter. Yeah. But it's that, that temptation, though, is meant to remind us as, about Moses being tempted by the flesh pots of Egypt, which is a recurring motif within Ulysses, those flesh pots of Egypt, is that while the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years, they're like, man, it was way better when we were enslaved back in Egypt. We had flesh pots. There's pots full of flesh. But Stephen is quick to realize that these words are merely wind, right? Wind being one of our symbolic motifs in this Aeolus episode named after the god of the winds. If your words are wind, they're likely to blow away as soon as they're uttered, only to twist and turn weathercocks 
in their gusts. And I mentioned a weathercock because Bloom had previously referred to the journalists as weathercocks. They, the direction they're pointing blows with the wind. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're kind of swayed this way and that. And Stephen's true aspiration, as he first noted in Nestor and many other places, to be a weaver of the wind. He wants to be the one in control of the words and the, the dialogue and the, the sort of thing. So um, there's this really odd little interlude here that I'll read again. Gone with the wind. Uh, this, you know, would predate Margaret Mitchell's novel of the same name. Mm -hmm. Gone with the wind. Hosts at Mullamass and Tara of, or Tara of the, is it Tara or Tara? Tara. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a combination of the both. Tara. 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 All right. Yeah. Hosts at Mullamass and Tara of the Kings. What does that mean? Well, Tara is the home of the High Kings of yeah. Ireland, right? Um, yeah. Mullamass, I'm not sure, though. Yeah. Is a fairly obscure place in the Irish landscape. I think it's a Wicklow or Wexford. It's somewhere on the East Coast. But these are both places where Daniel O'Connell held large open air gatherings of his followers and made famously um, eloquent speeches for the cause of Catholic emancipation. Uh, miles of ears of porches. So kind of deliberately twisted here, but is again referring to the Hamlet, you know, the poison pouring poison in the ear <laughs> right so you know that they they poured poison in the porches of king hamlet's ears it yeah it's just, you know i think shakespeare had a very tenuous grasp of how reality works <laughs> we say that but look how much stuff comes out look in different at the crap in macbeth like i witch, was gonna say in stuff and... that we like now what's it's wrong with the witches scooby-doo hamlet's like people love scooby-doo scooby-doo is one of the most enduring pop culture icons of the 20th century yeah. and i think i showed against you against all uh, odds i showed you that thing yeah. some 1992 early internet joke somebody had rewritten the end of hamlet with scooby-doo <laughs> solving the, the murder yoinks yep uh but that that, that he did it first though <sighs> yeah. every episode of scooby-doo is the same and i sat and watched every single one as a kid mm -hmm. and i bet you did too yeah yeah, because yeah. it's, it's good. It's, yeah. It works. All I'm saying is the no I, one's going to be putting... I want to talk about Daniel. <laughs> please. <laughs> the, the Tribune's words howled and scattered to the four winds. So he made these these speeches. They claim like a million people showed up to them. Mm -hmm. It's probably an overestimate, but yeah. it's, it's symbolically a million, even if it wasn't literally a million. Yeah. His words howled and scattered to the four winds, right? His words are gone with the wind. Mm. They, they blew away as quickly as they came. A people sheltered within his voice, dead noise. People were moved by his words. They they were, you know, it, it changed the direction of the country. Dead noise. Akashic records of all that ever, anywhere, wherever was. All right. Akashic records. What, what are those? Theosophical idea that everything that's ever happened has been mm -hmm. recorded in a huge library. Mm -hmm. Every burnt book still exists in there. Mm -hmm. It's it's every human experience. Every memory. Every, every memory. Everything. Everything ever written, everything ever spoken is exists in this sort of astral library uh, mm -hmm. that if you know how, you can access. Yes, comes from theosophy, exists in other occult systems of the time, but Joyce would have known it through theosophy. Um, A.E. and Yeats would have been very into this idea, so it would have funneled down to him through them. There is an interpretation of this is that O'Connell's words may have been swept away in the wind, but don't worry, they're in the Akashic record. If you can access them on the astral plane, hmm. there could be a hint of sarcasm in that. I've also read ones where people think like, no, Stephen is once again, like with the Vikings and Proteus having like a weird time slip where he's momentarily experiencing this much greater oratorical feat and then kind of snaps out and snaps back in. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that one. I like it. <laughs> Because it's it's outlandish, but yeah. I don't know. If it's the historian true. Arnold Toynbee was set to experience full sensory time slips. Yeah, where you saw like battles happening. Things. Yeah, so it's it's meant to be that. Mm. So it's a, a Toynbeean time slip. Mm -hmm. um, and then Stephen, love and laud him, me no more. You know, he's kind of moving on from you know these old tales of like this is the guy we're all supposed to love, we're all supposed to listen to his words. And he's like, yeah, I don't really feel that way anymore. And he goes, oh, I have money. What does he suggest? In response to Taylor's speech, he says nothing. You listen to the whole speech, mm. says nothing. And then Stephen says, gentlemen, as the next motion on the agenda paper, may I suggest that the house do now adjourn? And then why don't we all get go get loaded? <laughs> Let's get drunk. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is uh, how Caddyshack ends. Mm -hmm. No, that's everybody's going to get laid. <laughs> okay. While these beautiful words of... <laughs> 
thinking about Caddyshack now. Take two. Uh, so while O'Connell's beautiful words or even Taylor's beautiful words could attract such huge groups of devotees um, eager to hear the Tribune's words, they were ultimately dead noise in Stephen's mind. So part of the reason for this is during that era, Prime Minister Robert Peel declared O'Connell's rebellious meetings illegal and O'Connell capitulated rather than push back. O'Connell was not radical enough in his resistance in this view. He comforted the throngs with his words, but they were filled with false hope, a poison for the ears of his listeners. And that's meant to be a parallel to Taylor's nationalistic eloquence being similarly hollow. So how do you feel about that? I can see that. It's a common criticism of people. They yeah. don't go far enough, quick enough. Yeah. And until you get somebody like the lads in 1916 mm-hmm. who go, oh, let's just blow things up. Which Joyce was horrified by 1916. Mm. He, he did. Yeah, he was really upset by the Easter Rising, actually. Mm. He did not like political violence. Mm-hmm. As a spoken riposte, like I said, Stephen has a much better idea um, against suggesting that they adjourn to a boozing shed. Scholar So Onose believes that this is an illusion the way Stephen, Stephen's kind of speaking in this like almost parliamentary style and scholar Onose believes that this is an allusion to uh, a Parnellian tactic of adjourning meetings prematurely in order to force English MPs to focus on Irish needs is if they started to move on to other things, he and his MPs would just adjourn the meeting mm-hmm. and they'd lose quorum and they couldn't talk about other things yep. and they would keep doing it again and again until they got what they wanted. Right. And apparently it was effective. In 1877, Parnell and six colleagues managed to hold the floor for more than 20 hours. Now, this is the opposite of what I just said, until the English opposition capitulated. More of a filibuster. But he'd use these kind of parliamentary procedures to force the English opposition to Hmm. do what he wanted. I hear the criticism that O'Connell wasn't radical enough. But I think sometimes, you know, there's a back and forth to getting what you want politically. And sometimes you have to make concessions to get the things that you want it's not a radical idea but i under i understand why somebody would kind of be making those chess moves in their head politically the newsmen are far more energized by stephen's invitation to adjourn to the pub than by McHugh's nationalistic rhetoric uh omadden burke even jousts with an umbrella sword which i know one interpretation of that is accepting a role as a brother in arms alongside stephen's ash sword mm-hmm. he says leon Macduff, obviously another uh shakespearean illusion there if taylor's words lack the power to move these men booze certainly motivates them i guess i would like to offer a little more substantive rebuttal to taylor's words by asking a question it's pretty easy to understand the the historical parallel that he draws between the british empire and the colonized irish and the mighty egyptians i don't know if you'd call them an empire but the very powerful egyptians and the enslaved israelites how similar were those two situations, actually? Not really. Why do you say that? Well, had were the Egyptians militarily occupying Israel? No, they they somehow made them all go down to Egypt. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, maybe captured them or were they forcing them to speak Egyptian? Right. Like, maybe people would choose to learn Egyptian, but in Ireland it was like, you know, we're going to ban the Irish language, we're going to ban your culture. Under modern definitions of genocide, it, qu- it would probably qualify as a genocide. Um, like Cromwell in Ireland? Yeah, from the whole thing. Like, if, you, if, you try, if you're trying to remove the existence of a people, their culture, their language, you don't even have to kill them. If you obliterate their culture, you've committed, you've ended their existence mm-hmm. as a recognizable mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. You've wiped out that culture. You don't necessarily have to be so vulgar mm-hmm. as the Nazis. You know, there are yeah. different ways of doing it. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think so because there's there's going to be some overlap, but mm-hmm. you know, you have one people exploiting another for economic mm-hmm. gain. But I think drawing the parallel too tight, yeah, mm-hmm. would would be a mistake. Yeah. And I think Taylor's argument is largely an appeal to emotion. Mm-hmm. It's a story that pretty much everybody knows. Be, you know, because pretty much everyone would have had a a religious education if they had an education at all in that era. Mm. But the question at hand, though, is not Irish and Israelites or Egyptians and British. It's specifically the revival of the Irish language. It didn't seem that the Hebrew language was, you know, on its last legs in Egypt. It seemed that the Hebrew language was widely spoken amongst the Israelite people, the biblical Israelites. Is there a lot of historic fact to the Moses stuff? 
Okay, yeah, you're doing the same thing I am, so we might just leave it there. Yeah. We'll, we'll just leave that. Um, the Pharaohs, most of my knowledge of this is from, like, Sunday school in the early 90s and, like, Charlton Heston movies. But the Pharaohs weren't necessarily trying to impose their own language or culture on the Israelites. They mm. seemed to be able to practice Judaism, mm. but they were, you know, enslaved. Yeah. So, which is not great, obviously. Taylor's speech is indeed moving, but it still succumbs to the perils of Dawson and Bush. It's just more effective at what he's trying to do. Richard Elman points out, quote, a desire not to live in the present, but to live in a petrified past and speak a dead language with relation to this. That they cast to the past, you know, a semi-historic, maybe mythological past to cast themselves in a favorable light. I do take umbrage with Elman's characterization of speaking a dead language. I, I feel very strongly about language revitalization because language is, a, I would say, a central part to any culture. Mm -hmm. It's where your, your history and your worldview and your... Your sense of the world is buried, but well, so. just this week we've had the incident of the Irish language hip hop. Oh, kneecap, kneecap, yeah. who have been denied a grant by the Kemi mm -hmm. of Tory government minister, who seems mm -hmm. to forget that the Good Friday Agreement exists, mm -hmm. that they keep doing this. But yeah, like, it, but it fits with the pattern mm -hmm. of the British imperial relations with yeah. Ireland trying to stamp out Irish culture, Irish language, mm -hmm. and they're being dragged by their conquered mm -hmm. people into the reality of yeah. you can't do this we're not going to let you and you know we'll make you look really really stupid mm -hmm. which is what's yeah. happening you're being you're being made to look like an idiot by yeah. an irish language hip-hop group <laughs> yeah and so yeah and i think there are real concrete reasons why any minority language must be preserved mm. However, I don't think Taylor makes any of them in the speech. Uh, it's laid out very well if you read the book James Joyce's Ulysses Critical Essays uh, by scholar M.J.C. Hoggart about how Taylor's argument lacks logical reasons to support his points. It just re it relies very heavily on argumentum ad passionis, which is an appeal to emotion. Mm. And it's effective because you feel excited when you listen to you feel energized. You're like, yeah, yeah, those guys do suck. We're great. We're the underdogs, but mm -hmm. like everybody loves an underdog, you know? Really, Taylor's speech never provides adequate evidence to prove his syllogism that the Irish language is the historical successor of Hebrew. And there's some like Irish Orientalism going on in there too yep. of like the Irish might be a secret lost tribe of Israel. We have a, a whole episode about that called Irish Orientalism. There's some of that brewed in there as well. Taylor's argument also leans on argumentum ad hominem, which means an appeal to the man. Do you know what that one would be? Yeah, where you ridicule your opponent's argument because of who they are or, mm -hmm. you know. It's the opposite of that though, because it's an appeal to the man. So because Taylor is a stand-up guy, mm -hmm. his argument is also a good argument. Okay. Because, yeah, we hear ad hominem attacks a lot where, you're, you know, you don't refute the person's point. You just say, right. oh, he's an idiot. Who among us has not done that? Mm. <laughs> you can do the opposite of that too, mm. where you're like, look, John F. Taylor, he's a great guy. He's really good. He, you know, he does, he thinks all the right things. So that means his arguments sound without actually looking at the argument. You're just arguing that Taylor is good. And he may, he may have been, I don't, I don't know the guy, but his good character is touted early on by McHugh and Crawford both. And the esteem of the man lends esteem to his words. And you see that a lot throughout Ulysses. I've seen commentators say that's something that's peculiar to Irish culture, but I don't really agree with that. I think that is just a human thing mm -hmm. because logic is hard. Like you really have to like dig deeper, but I feel like, yeah, Dermot's great. So whatever he's saying is good. Like again, who among us has not done that? Author of the Ulysses reading guide, Ulysses a study, Stuart Gilbert wrote that Taylor's speech is an example of, quote, the manner in which eloquence aided by the rhetorical device of a far-fetched, not to say false analogy, can produce conviction in the listener's mind. And who among us has not fallen victim to that sort of thing? Honestly, might be an effective rhetorical device to win in a debate if you're trying to win over the hearts and minds of people. Because people are far more moved by their own emotions than they are their own sense of logic. As anyone who's ever followed politics even a little bit is surely aware. 
Like, how many of the big decisions, political decisions that we make are based on actual facts and supporting evidence and not just on how we feel in our gut, you know? Uh, despite all this, I still want to say I really always enjoy rereading Taylor's speech. You know, it may not present evidence to support his premise, but it does play to my own natural biases. Mm. Uh, so I am predisposed to find it convincing. I, I go into it believing Taylor's buried premise, right? The enthymeme, that the Irish language must be revived. I, I enter it already believing that and therefore can be easily swayed by his eloquence since I don't need solid proof of that statement to find that argument compelling. And that's, you know, we've talked about enthymemic technique in Eolus. There it is. That's the really big one there. While the language debate may seem relatively benign on its surface, pretty words akin to Taylor's do eventually contribute in part to armed revolt in Ireland, and not that many years later. 14 years, I believe, after Taylor's speech, so that's nothing. Uh, whether or not you see that as positive, again, will be due to your own biases. Words may be woven of wind, but any breeze has the potential to become a gale. Mm -hmm. Next headline section here. Let us hope. J.J. Malloy, about to follow him in, said quietly to Stephen, I hope you live to see it published. Miles, one moment. He went into the inner office, closing the door behind him. Come along, Stephen, the professor said. That is fine, isn't it? It has the prophetic vision. Fuit Ilium, the sack of windy Troy, kingdoms of this world, the masters of the Mediterranean are fellaheen today. The first newsboy came pattering down the stairs at their heels and rushed out into the street yelling, Racing special! Dublin, I have much, much to learn. They turned to the left along Abbey Street. I have a vision too, Stephen said. Yes, the professor said, skipping to get into step. Crawford will follow. Another newsboy shot past them, yelling as he ran, Racing special. Okay. Because he's Herald the Press, Herald the Press. So I can sort of mm -hmm. hear it, but getting that mm -hmm. like d mm -hmm. deep Dublin. Racing special. Yeah. So there's a little moment here between Stephen and McHugh. Crawford has gone into his office to look for his keys, and J.J. Malloy says, kind of, one moment, and follows him in. So it's just Stephen and McHugh, and they step out onto Abbey Street, and then they turn left. So they are where I thought they were. Mm -hmm. If they were there today, they could pop in and get a Govindas. You know, A.E. Russell would have been in a Govindas in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was vegetarian for like a year. Yeah. We have a, a blog post about vegetarian in Ulysses. So you mm -hmm. go read that. Yeah, and then, so the professors kind of clap himself on the back. Oh, that is fine, isn't it? It has the prophetic vision. Do you know what fuit ilium means? Mm -mm. It means Troy, Troy has been. Okay. You know, so there's this wistfulness of the past, of things that were. Uh, the sack of windy Troy... And McHugh is, of course, a classics professor. Kingdoms of this world, the masters of the Mediterranean are fellaheen today. What's fellaheen? Fellaheen, isn't that like an Arabic word? Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm thinking yeah, yeah. Fremen or something in Dune. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. It's a, according to Collins Dictionary, it's a peasant in Arab countries. Ah, okay. It's an Ozymandias thing, you know, look, you know, look upon me mm -hmm. in despair or whatever, but right. like you're just a big broken thing that nobody knows about yeah. anymore. Sick transit, Gloria Mundi, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, exunt, they, uh, they exit. Now, I will say this section and the next section start to get into Stephen's Parable of the Plums. We're going to do a full episode about that. That episode probably won't come out until March if you're reading this in real time because Dermot's going to Spain at the end of the month. So we're going to take a little break. That deserves its own episode, but I think we should just read through these now and then we'll revisit it again in the next main feed episode. Dear Dirty Dublin, Dubliners, Two Dublin Vestals, Stephen said, elderly and pious, have lived fifty and fifty-three years in Fumbley's Lane. Where is that? the professor asked. Off Black Pits, Stephen said. Damp night reeking of hungry dough against the wall, face glistering, tallow under her fustian shawl, frantic hearts, acastic records, quicker, darling. Oh, now, dare it, let there be life. They want to see the views of Dublin from the top of Nelson's pillar. They save up three and tenpence in their red tin letterbox money box. They shake out the threepenny bits and sixpences and coax out the pennies with the blade of a knife. Two and three in silver and one and seven in coppers. They put on their bonnets and best clothes and take their umbrellas for fear it might come on to rain. Wise virgins, Professor McHugh said. Okay, so we're going to resist her temptation to talk about the two Dublin Vestals here. Mm -hmm. But this is Stephen presenting his parallel to McHugh for the first time. And he's kind of like building up courage to do so. You know, this is his first big um, non-urine-based creation. Mm -hmm. I would say that's a little more developed than that vampire poem. I wanted to talk a little bit about the phrase, Dear Dirty Dublin. Have you heard that phrase before? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or Dear Old Dirty Dublin, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. 
it is uh, it's a phrase associated with James Joyce. Hmm. And so a lot of people think that he coined it. It appears in one form or another in Dubliners, Ulysses, and Finnegan's Wake. But uh, Joyce did not coin it. it. It predates him by about a century. Coinage is often ascribed to Lady Sidney Morgan in the 1830s, a long time ago. As is often the case with this sort of thing, there, it's much more complicated than that. There's a really good um, article on James Joyce online notes by scholar John Simpson that has a much more detailed article for anyone interested. And I'll, we'll link it in the show notes at our website. So I, I would recommend reading that. But basically... Using dear, like this dear little Dublin or dear dirty Dublin or like phrases that weren't exactly that. They mm-hmm. didn't always have that alliteration. But that was a really common turn of phrase among the upper classes at that time. Lady Sidney Morgan, she was a writer. She did live in Dublin and she wrote about Dublin. And I don't think she ever used that exact dear dirty Dublin mm-hmm. um, that Joyce uses. But there were lots of other writers writing around the same time that used similar phrases and it was just sort of a quirk of upper class speech in that era Mm. but um it predates joyce which is i think most important for us to know but you you see lots of things to say it especially if you want to buy like joyce souvenirs and that if you're ever in dublin but that phrase dear dirty dublin is you you hear it a lot uh we're gonna again just read this but we're gonna save our commentary mostly for the next episode life on the raw they buy one and fourpence worth of brawn and four slices of pan loaf at the North City dining rooms in Marlborough Street for Miss Kate Collins, proprietress. They purchase four and twenty ripe plums from a girl at the foot of Nelson's Pillar to take off the thirst of the brawn. They give two threepenny bits to the gentleman at the turnstile and begin to waddle slowly up the winding staircase, grunting, encouraging each other, afraid of the dark, panting, one asking the other, have you the brawn, praising God and the Blessed Virgin, sweating to come down, Peeping at the air slits, glory be to God, they had no idea it was that high. Their names are Anne Kearns and Florence McCabe. Anne Kearns has a lumbago for which she rubs on Lourdes water, given her by a lady who got a bottleful from a passionless father. Florence McCabe takes a crewbean and a bottle of double X for supper every Saturday. Antithesis, the professor said, nodding twice. Vestal virgins, I can see them. What's keeping our friend? He turned. A bevy of scampering newsboys rushed down the steps, scattering in all directions, yelling, their white papers fluttering. Hard after them, Miles Crawford appeared on the steps, his hat aureoling his scarlet face, talking with J.J. O'Malloy. Come along, the professor cried, waving his arm. He set off again to walk by Stephen's side. Stephen continues to present his parable to McHugh. I'm just wondering what you think of the parable at this point. About the two, the two women. Going oh, so up. the parable is the two ladies going yes, to the top of yes. the tower. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, see, so you haven't gone to the part where he names it the parable of the plums. Eh, okay, it's not clear to me that's the parable. Or a Pisgah side of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Those are his two titles. It's like mm. Doctor Strangelove. I'm just interested in the description of the interior of the pillar. Mm. I just wonder like what it was like in there. Mm-hmm. My dad went to the top of it when he was a young lad. Um, there's a video on cr vault on the on youtube mm-hmm. where it's, it was shot like a month before it got blown up the mm-hmm. old man who had the job of letting people up and the gatekeeper thought oh your job's gonna go away really soon yeah it was a good job too just like yeah. opening the gate in the middle of o'connell street mm-hmm. and you yeah yeah no one's got a job of like letting people up the spire do they yeah and uh, the little slits in the on the way up too so you mm-hmm. can get to see some light i guess too for that i because I, you don't notice that when you look at photographs of it there were little mm-hmm. slits in the wall yeah no i i'm just reading it as just a regular narrative at this point okay yeah but you can tell it's it's meant to be allegorical mm-hmm. right yeah the vestal virgins he's talking about yeah, 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 yeah. oh antithesis mm-hmm. right they're mm-hmm. vestal virgins but they do kind of some non-virginal things yeah yeah so basically Stephen and McHugh are killing time while they're waiting for Crawford and O'Malloy do you know what's keeping them if you don't it's okay because no, I don't I have think no they've idea. said it just yeah, yet yeah 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 it's right. annoying though because like we've been waffling on with these bloody speeches <laughs> you're all doing your little impersonation yeah. to Daniel O'Connell I just want to go to the pub and have a drink yeah 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 now, do you remember, before we get into the next little bit here, do you remember the, the general conceit of this episode is that it's um, it maps onto the Odysseus's encounter with Aeolus, the god of the winds? Mm-hmm. Do you remember how that encounter goes? Oh, yeah. Well, Odysseus, uh, he, the god gives him a present. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes away. His stupid sailors open it up. They think it's full of gold. Yeah. The wind blows him. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes back. Mm-hmm. to get more wind and Aeolus says get the F out of here okay. you don't and that, there's actually that's an important thing you, you never ask the gods for the same thing twice yeah. it's a mistake 
Yeah, like well, it. Odysseus learned that the hard way. Yeah. So, a friend of mine had that encounter with the hyperdimensional elves when he was on DMT. Oh. <laughs> they told him the secret of the universe and mm-hmm. it all made perfect sense. And mm-hmm. he went back a second time and they said, get the fuck out of here. You know, we've already m- told you. We're not going to repeat yeah. ourselves. Secret of the universe only makes sense when you're on DMT. That's, uh, he, that's, that's the problem. problem. He would sober yeah. up and go, oh, what was it? It's like a dream that you can't uh, remember. The machine elves or the whatever machine they call elves. Them. Man, yes. it's definitely one of those episodes of Blooms and Barnacles today, isn't it? <laughs> Got cats fighting outside Those the door. Those are our elves. They're... Yes, they're they. <laughs> it sounds worse than it is. I hope it doesn't. It's mostly plain. All right. Yeah. Return of Bloom. Yes, he said. I see them. Mister Bloom, breathless, caught in a whirl of wild newsboys near the offices of Irish Catholic and Dublin Penny Journal, called Mister Crawford. A moment. Telegraph racing special. What is it? Miles Crawford said, falling back a pace. A newsboy cried in Mr. Bloom's face. Terrible tragedy in Red Moines. A child hit by a bellows. No, read that again. It's not hit by a bellows. Oh, a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible tragedy in Red Moines. A child bit by a bellows. Okay, so this is the return of Bloom. I want to talk about that last line there that Dermot read so evocatively. So based on an article, again, by... Scholar John Simpson over at James Joyce Online Notes, jjon.org. If you haven't been over there, what are you even doing? It's a really good website. Simpson cites a 1908 article in the Irish Independent about the lives of newsboys on the streets of Dublin. And I'm going to go through this part very quickly, but it's it's a really interesting article, Simpson's article, um, where he cites heavily from this 1908 Irish Independent story. The newsboys were, I mean, they were children, but they were incredibly professional children Mm. um they were absolutely at the top of their game as salespeople just cutthroat competitive uh, against one another and um they were all competing against one another to sell basically the same thing so what they would do sometimes to get people to buy their copy of the paper was to make up sensationalist headlines (laughs) that do not appear in the paper anywhere but they would just make stuff up because then people would be like boy bit by bellows what does that even mean here and they buy it and then they're like wait a minute there's nothing about boy bit by bellows in here that irish independent article cited several real fake headlines if Mm -hmm. that makes sense one of which was shocking railway accident train runs into station and another was horrible accident in rathmines child bit by a bellows okay and so joyce clearly lifted Lifted that out of the irish independent so it's it's just too weird to have occurred twice in two separate instances so i i really delighted in reading that you can again this article will be linked in our show notes so um go read the whole thing if, if you're a newsies fan and you want to know about the real newsies well these aren't the newsies in the film newsies you were never an 11 year old girl so i know you haven't seen newsies mm. it's it's a it's a it's a labor rights movie mm, okay they go the newsboys go on strike oh all right yeah, yeah, yeah. okay so all right so now you're open to watching yeah, newsies. yeah yeah <laughs> okay i'm off for strikes Interview with the editor. Just this ad, Mr. Bloom said, pushing through towards the steps, puffing and taking the cutting from his pocket. I spoke with Mr. Keyes just now. He'll give a renewal for two months, he says. After, he'll see. But he wants a par to call attention in the Telegraph too, the Saturday Pink. And he wants it copied if it's not too late. I told Councillor Nettie from the Kilkenny people. I can have access to it from the National Library. House of Keyes, don't you see? His name is Keyes. It's a play on the name. But he practically promised he'd give the renewal. But he wants just a little puff. What will I tell him, Mr. Crawford? So Bloom is kind of recapping his mission. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts or questions about that? Uh, he's a bit overly amused by the keys, but... Uh, he just he thinks it's such a great idea. Yeah. And I think, especially yeah. as we get into Lestragonians in the coming months, you see, Bloom really has like all these little schemes he's dreamed up in his head. Mm-hmm. And he is very convinced they're all brilliant. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is but one. Um, one of the far less elaborate ones. So he's really trying to sell this idea to Miles Crawford, who has said, this guy needs to get three months renewal or we're not giving him the ad. Mm-hmm. Three months or nothing. Mm-hmm. And Keyes is counter-offered with two. And also, I want you to write a little puff. Mm-hmm. So if you look at newspapers from this era, like you can find scans of the like the 16th of June, 1904, Freeman's Journal. It's just all tiny, tiny text. There are no images. Mm. 
it's just all text all the way down, even the ads. So there'll be little descriptive paragraphs under the ads hmm. that are like, wine and spirits sold by Alexander Keys are the finest in all Dublin city. You know, like it's just something like that to kind of mm-hmm. um, big him up a little bit. And so he wants that added, less renewal. He wants one in a Saturday, which wasn't on the table. It's, I mean, it's not reasonable, unreasonable to offer a counter offer. Let's see what the king of the wind says. KMA. Will you tell him he can kiss my arse? Miles Crawford said, throwing out his arm for emphasis. Tell him that straight from the stable. A bit nervy, look out for squalls. I'll offer a drink, arm in arm. Lenehan's yachting cap on the cadge beyond, the usual blarney. Wonder is that young Daedalus, the moving spirit, has a good pair of boots on him today. Last time I saw him, he had his heels on view. Been walking in muck somewhere. Careless chap. What was he doing in Irish town? Well, Mr. Bloom said, his eyes returning. If I can get him the design, I suppose it's worth a short par. He'll give the ad, I think. I'll tell him. Okay. So, uh, Bloom is rebuffed by the King of the Winds. AMA has kissed my ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> tell him he can kiss my ass. <laughs> um, so, Bloom sees Stephen. So, again, this is the two of them passing one another in the street a little more closely. Right. What does he notice about Stephen? Uh, better boots. Yeah, but why does he have better boots than usual? Uh, well, he's walking on Sandy Mount, right? Yeah, that's why they're covered in muck. Yeah, yeah. But why did so his old boots apparently he had his heels on view so he had big holes in his holes. shoes. Why does he have better boots today? I don't... These are Mulligan's cast off boots that Stephen has oh, taken, okay. right? Okay. What was he doing in Irish Town? What does that mean? Where's Irish Town? Irish Town would be uh, Irish Town. Well, Queenstown would have been the old Dunleary, right? Mm-hmm. The old names. So Irish Town's one of the British names for God knows where. It would be near like Ringsend, that area, yeah, okay. Sandy Mount. What? When was Bloom and Sandy Mount, where he might have seen Stephen, who was oh, also in Sandy Mount. I forget. Uh, that's the um, the Paddy Dignam funeral cortege. Oh, that was the funeral, yeah, but that was Glasnevin's. Evans. But they started in Sandy Mount. Yeah, went, oh, right, right. that's right. where Dignam lived. And then they had yeah. to cross the rivers, right? They mm-hmm. crossed the, yep. the, uh, the puddle and the... Yeah, all those, yeah they yeah. crossed all the rivers and they also passed Stephen Dedalus walking right. around in his mucky boots. Right, right. And right. so he's wondering, yeah, I saw him earlier. What was he doing there? That's a mm-hmm. weird place for him to be. Mm-hmm. K-M-R-I-A. He can kiss my royal Irish arse, Miles Crawford cried loudly over his shoulder. Any time he likes, tell him. While Mr. Bloom stood weighing the point and about to smile, he strode on jerkily. Okay, and that's where we'll leave our Bloom until Lester So this is the god of the wind, like going, F. The god Odysseus, kiss my royal Irish arse. Casting Brian Blessed. (laughs) Or if we can't get him, if we can't get him, we'll we'll settle for Gerald Butler. (laughs) Just give him a lot of coke. <laughs> yep, <laughs> definitely. Okay, I I didn't want you though to read the kiss my royal Irish art. I always like that part, so yeah. I wanted you to read that cold. Okay, <laughs> are any thoughts? <laughs> okay, the KMA and KMRIA. I'd like to hang out with these this. guys just for an afternoon mm-hmm. and go with them, have some drinks, just yeah. listen to them talk. It'd be fun. Yeah, Bloom is the only one among them working. Mm-hmm. Bloom is working his own royal Irish arse off, and mm-hmm. the rest of them are just like. Have done nothing. Then, They've done, done nothing productive all day. They're living the dream. Yeah. Last little bit here. Raising the wind. Nulla bona, Jack, he said, raising his hand to his chin. I'm up to here. I've been through the hoop myself. I was looking for a fellow to back a bill for me in a letter than last week. Sorry, Jack. You must take the will for the deed. With the heart and a half if I could raise the wind anyhow. Jeju and Malloy pulled a long face and walked on silently. They caught up on the others and walked abreast. When they have eaten the brawn and the bread and wiped their twenty fingers in the paper the bread was wrapped in, they go nearer to the railings. Something for you, the professor explained to Miles Crawford, two old Dublin women on the top of Nelson's pillar. So, what's going on here? I am not sure. <laughs> the Nulla Bona Jackie said, I have no idea what Who's Jack? Are. Jack. J.J. Amaloy. So that's the J in J.J. Yeah. Um, Nulla Bona. What do you think that means? Nulla is no good. No good. Yeah. Okay. Can't do it. No good. What does raising the wind mean? Raising the wind? Trying to borrow some money. Oh, okay. Okay. So remember, um, Crawford had held back because he was looking for his keys. And so J.J. Amaloy followed him into the office. Mm -hmm. And now they've both reemerged together. Mm. And the first thing we hear Crawford saying to Amaloy is, Nulla Bona, Jack. Can't do it. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm up to here. He's saying I've been through the hoop myself. What does that mean? You know, like I've been in trouble before trouble. too. Yeah, like yeah, I yeah. I get where you're coming from. I was looking for a fella to back a bill for me. You no know, later than last week. What do you think? Back a bill. Back a bill. Uh, like by a bill, does he mean money? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay, so he's looking for yeah. money himself. Yeah, right. sorry, Jack. You must take the will for the deed. You know, with a heart and a half, if I could raise the wind anyhow. Mm-hmm. You see, I just can't help you. Yeah. I, I wish I could. I just can't. Like, J.J. Mm. O'Malloy pulled a long face and walked on silently. Mm. So J.J. O'Malloy's looking for some alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah. he's not getting it, so he's not... Yeah, so remember, he was the brightest young man at the junior bar, and now he's fallen on hard times. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to raise the wind with Miles Crawford, and he's just like, no, I can't do it, sorry. Mm-hmm. Stephen is less interested in um, receiving uh, monetary capital mm-hmm. from Crawford, will now also attempt to raise the wind, but he hopes to procure some cultural capital, which the last line for our section today, something for you, the professor explained to Miles Crawford, two old Dublin women on the top of Nelson's pillar. So he's presented his idea to McHugh. McHugh's kind of tickled by it. So now Stephen, he's kind of warmed up. He's going to present his idea to Miles Crawford. Mm -hmm. Stephen will present his creative vision to Miles Crawford. Will Crawford accept? Find out next time on Blooms and Barnacles. Well, you can read the book. Yeah, you can, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, I'm assuming you've read the book. <laughs> Don't assume. <laughs> Any other thoughts for today, Dermot? Nope. All right. We'll see you in March. See you then. In Smarch. You should have knocked. <laughs> Knock, you impertinent butler, were loud enough to wake the hounds of hell. Lead on, my God. I shall. <laughs>